This is Works in Progress, a podcast from the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. I'm Avishai Artsy. The city of Los Angeles feels very different than usual. Outdoor areas are mostly void of people, traffic jams have vanished, and the trains and buses are mostly empty. Street life has all but disappeared. People walk onto the street to avoid brushing by a stranger on the sidewalk. The world has narrowed to the confines of our homes and neighborhoods, and the internet has become our main public forum. Will everything go back to normal once the pandemic is over? Or will we forever move through the city differently? And how might the home change as it replaces the office for many of us, at least for now? We've been looking at the theme of home on the podcast with interviews with photographer Catherine Opie and graphic designer Willem Henry Lucas. For more on the physical changes that might result from COVID-19, we reached out to Dana Cuff. She's a professor in the architecture and urban design department at UCLA, and she's the founding director of City Lab. I asked her how she's addressing these questions in her spring quarter classes. Yes, well, I totally changed my class, actually, to respond to the pandemic. I couldn't imagine teaching, you know, without recognizing what's going on in all the students' lives as well as my own. So we're really looking at, it's a doctoral student's class about architectural history, and we're looking at how architectural history might have lessons for the current crisis. Are there any examples that you can think of, of that we could take from architectural history? Architectural and urban history. I mean, I think, you know, the evolution of the hospital, for instance, has a lot to do with epidemics. Actually, all of um, housing law has to do with epidemics. Uh, so the first housing law that came into play in the United States, anyway, in New York, at the turn of the century, maybe from the 1850s to 1920 or so, was all about epidemics that were moving from immigrant neighborhoods in tenements to the wider New York area. And it was because those epidemics didn't respect the boundaries of class and ethnicity that the well-to-do of New York got so nervous that they in fact improved the housing conditions, say ventilation and densities of the working class and immigrant populations. Oh, that's an interesting point. And mm-hmm. in, in fact, a lot of those residents of, you know, say tenements in New York ended up coming to California to escape some of the health situations, right? There was like a tuberculosis outbreak on the East Coast that brought yeah. a lot of people to the West Coast. There's a really interesting book that just came out uh, last year by a professor of architecture at Princeton, Beatrice Colomina, called X-Ray Architecture. And she rewrites the entire history of modernism through the lens of tuberculosis, saying that it was really the uncertainties and crises of tuberculosis that shaped modern architecture. A lot of us are spending more time in our homes and probably thinking about our homes and how they're designed and how maybe they could be designed better to be more comfortable as a place to work and not just a place to sleep and eat. Are you thinking a little bit about home design, given how much time we're now spending at home? Well, if you're talking about personally, I really am, because my husband and I are both working from home now, and we designed our own house, and it's very open. So I'm in every one of his meetings inadvertently, and he's in every one of mine. (laughs) So I'm sort of thinking about the old school, um, you know, rooms with real walls and doors seem 
pretty good to me at the moment. Uh, but, you know, I'm not sure. I, I suppose there's a way in which our homes uh, as workplaces have revealed a kind of um, intimacy that we might not choose otherwise. You know, what you look at behind me in my Zoom meetings is, you know, an assembly of not only my books, but my family photos and my dog and you know, I see that of all my students now, too. You know, there was a way in early modern suburban houses that you had a phone desk, sometimes uh, like just off the kitchen, there would be a counter where your phone would be located. Mm -hmm. We might see something like that evolve now, a small nook where you could have a meeting with video conferencing that didn't reveal the rest of your house. In some ways, tech workspaces have these already. Uh, they call them actually phone booths. So if you look at Snapchat or Facebook or any of the tech companies, there are little small rooms you can go into and have a video call there. Right. And those phone booths, I think, are largely a response to sort of the popularity of the open office plan. And now there's sort of a backlash against that. The cubicle walls are coming back because people realize they want their private space. And maybe that'll be the case, like you're saying, in homes, too, where you might have a room. Maybe there's a green screen already there. So that doesn't reveal all your <laughs> family photos or books or whatever you might not want everyone to see. You're pointing something out that I think we would be remiss not to mark and punctuate and that is that this virus spatially is really affecting us very differently it's not an equitable process so people who have larger houses are able to find ways to work now much more easily than people who have smaller houses or uh, more kids and that will be true if we design around this also, I mean, the idea that we could design a room specifically for telecommuting is a kind of privilege that most people don't have and won't have. Uh, some people are actually telecommuting from their cars, for instance, mm -hmm. because that's the only space acoustically that they can separate themselves from the rest of a very dense household uh, that's, you know, sort of looming in the interior now. Yeah, I wonder if the home office used to be more of a feature of the home and it's become less so because there's sort of this backlash against taking your work home with you so that we want that kind of physical barrier between work and home and now we're all craving a home office. Yeah, it's interesting to think what sparked the home office per se. Or you might think then also of the reemergence of live work. So, of course, in the history of the relationship between the home and the office, they were one in the early stages of even factory life, say 16th century, 17th century. You had your Dutch fabric dye factory and your home all together. Mm -hmm. And it's really not until uh, 19th century that the office moves out of the home and then at a certain point, it comes back, probably after the war, when there's a possibility of uh, using telecommuting by telephone, of course. And usually a home office was really just another bedroom, right? There was maybe a space that was off one of the public spaces, but it really wasn't imagined that you'd be working there full time. As much as anything, 
the coronavirus conditions have demonstrated to employers that we can, in fact, telecommute and people don't need offices at the workplace. So I think what you said earlier about cubicles, it's the opposite of that, actually, that there will be less and less privacy available to us at the workplace because it will be expected that you could easily telecommute from home if you have the kind of office work that would permit that. There'd be less of designated cubicles or desk spaces and you just see, like you see at Facebook or something, just those long tables right. with chairs and you just yeah. plunk down your laptop and work from wherever. That's right. They call that bench office work. And all the tech companies and a lot of other companies besides that in uh, media and broadcasting and paper manufacturing like 3M, they've all moved away from private workspace, especially offices, even for the uh, higher ranking employees, and pushed everybody out into shared space. Maybe you have a fixed desk, but it's a small one. There's very little real estate for the individual worker now. There's a lot of peripheral space, and that's really what we were just talking about being um, useful at the home. So if everybody has a space on one of these open bench-like work tables, you need a space for a phone call or a space for a video call or a place for two people to meet and another place for four people to meet. So all of these workplaces have been shrinking the square footage of their office plan overall and offering more peripheral and adjunct kind of spaces and less private personal space. That's an interesting idea for the home also, that we might share smaller spaces and have more remote uh, individual spaces. And what about virtual meeting rooms? Have you been hearing about people strapping on a VR headset and meeting with people in you know, what they call the immersive internet? You're now no longer um, sitting on your bed or sitting at your kitchen table, but you're now in a virtual conference room with a bunch yeah. of other people. And that seems like another place that's ripe for design interventions as well. Yeah, you know, I've seen architects using that even through Zoom, you know, setting up a kind of virtual space that they're sitting in while explaining to a client that that's the space they're designing for them. So I think there are ways in which basically whatever you see behind me in my screen could be anything, right? And maybe we could make ourselves more present, almost in body, if we had more virtual meetings. I don't know about you, but I'm already exhausted by Zoom time, the sort of flat screen, multi-image cocktail parties and family get-togethers and now seders. And you just think, oh, this is endless. It's kind of soul crushing in a way. And I don't know if virtual space will change that much, but any variety would be welcome. What about getting around the city? I personally have barely used my car in the last three weeks. You know, I'm one of those people that can work from home. And we've seen a huge decline in the use of public transportation. Traffic's gone way down. The air is much cleaner. Um, yeah. So that's good. Do you think that there could be a permanent shift in how we move through the city? 
Well, I do think that just like we were talking about employers now recognizing that people can effectively work from home and employees, I mean, people like in the university, like you and me, who now have been pushed into working remotely see that it's actually like fine. I mean, I'm not sure if I would ever go back and teach my classes quite the same way again. There'd be times when it might be better that we operate remotely. I think there could be lasting effects also in our daily lives in the city. One would hope that the environmental benefits of this, which are really so apparent, of much less noise pollution, way less air pollution. I don't know if you've looked at those maps globally, but it's astounding. Mm. And people see that they can work from home. There could be a kind of rationing of the roads that would make sense environmentally if we really did get a Green New Deal, for example. Mm -hmm. And now that people who can work from home could continue to do so. Again, the uh, spatial justice aspects of this, you just have to keep calling them out. Like most people in blue collar jobs can't work from home, right? Their jobs right. are involving their bodies, whether that's delivery or manufacturing or food service or hotel cleaning or whatever. This whole new world, quote unquote, that we're experiencing doesn't apply to them. And that makes them more at risk in all kinds of ways right now, both in terms of just their job, but also in terms of their health. So for those who can work from home, I could imagine there being lasting effects. I'll tell you the thing that I think we all anecdotally have experienced when we go out and our worlds are getting smaller and smaller with more and more quarantine regulation by the day. So, you know, at first when you would be going out to a park or up to the UCLA campus or out to the beach, it was pretty crowded with people who were going out to watch a sunset or at the end of the day, and uh, what really struck me was that you'd see both parents and their children and their pets all out together. Like hmm. in the past, it would be that dad would take the kids out while mom, you know, finished her work or vice versa. But the idea that it was really family gatherings in public space, I felt like I was in an Andy Griffith program. You know, it was uh -huh. like 1950s Donna Reed, like here's the whole collection of us again playing in some pre-nuclear you know environment <laughs> it's a strange like you don't you just don't see that anymore now that we've become more and more restricted i think i'm meeting more of my neighbors so in paris right now you can only go one kilometer radius from your house and of course, in Paris, you probably have a store and a, you know, cleaner and a, all the services you need for your daily life are likely to be within a kilometer of any house. Mm -hmm. What that would mean to apply to California or in the United States would really depend drastically on where you live, like how, how close your world grows. If you live in the suburbs or if you live in downtown L.A., or if you live near the beach, gives you access to a totally different world right now. So we mm -hmm. really have a fragmentation that's often been the way Los Angeles was described, I think, in the past. 
Have you noticed a difference in how people are just walking through the city and exploring their neighborhoods? I'm seeing a lot of that on social media right now. The way people are moving through space right now is really interesting and really changes the way we perceive the city around us. And I'm not sure what the lasting effects of that are, but I think most people, when they step out of the house and um, try to move through space, keeping the social distancing, it means that some people are stepping into the street and other people are walking on the sidewalk and we're crossing major boulevards without traffic. There's ways in which it's been taken over by pedestrians that's pretty uh, great. You know, the street sidewalk differentiation doesn't mean as much as it did before. But I also wonder if we aren't going to enter a phase where we take drives. That's the kind of thing my grandparents did as an outing. And mm -hmm. it's one of the few things you can do now safely and maintain a kind of social distance. Mm -hmm. People that have been trapped, I think the next era going out for a drive and seeing a part of the city that you might not have seen before. Yeah, I think of the romantic vision of driving in LA that you read in Joan <laughs> Didion's Play It As It Lays, where the protagonist would just like cruise around on the freeways, or Rainer Banham That's right. loves Los Angeles, and he's just driving around and enjoying the freedom of mobility that we've sort of lost in the last decade or so. And you're right, the last couple times that I have driven around, it's amazing. Like you're in rush hour traffic, and yet you're going 60 miles an hour on the 10 freeway. And I'd forgotten what that could feel like, and it's pretty yeah, exciting. That's, that's right. Driving could be pleasurable again in the ways that people hold a myth of Los Angeles that those of us who live here no longer believe possible. It may be what's keeping people in their homes is that no one thinks of driving as fun anymore. <laughs> well, maybe people will get out on their bikes too, because that does seem like a pretty safe way of getting around the city. If you're on your bike, you're less likely to get super close to other people. Biking is really, I think, a hopeful indirect effect. You know, if we could take over some of these streets and make them all one-way bike lanes. We really built a new infrastructure that was privileging pedestrians and bikes. It would be amazing. Right now, the city should get out that green paint and paint entire both directions of, uh, you know, different streets green so that it was like Ciclavia every day. Mm -hmm. And if we had enough of those, we could stay apart from one another and still get a little wind in our hair. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of economic anxiety right now, and that is um, leading city officials to call for um, a moratorium on rent hikes and on banks to allow people to delay paying their mortgages. I know you've been active in housing rights issues. We are facing a real housing crisis here in Los Angeles, and there's yeah. a fear that the coronavirus pandemic will exacerbate homelessness. What do you see as the impact in terms of housing policy and homelessness in the city? It's an important question. It's hard to tell when the public focus can come back to something like that, or if it will. But there are a few things that I think are really important that are happening. So Mayor Garcetti has been saying for years that we should address our 
unhoused population as a kind of emergency. And the metaphor he's used is if we had an earthquake and had 59,000 people pushed out onto the street, we would solve that problem. And we have 59,000 people who are living unsheltered. Why can't we treat it like an emergency? And in fact, we now are. So community centers and public venues are being used for shelters to bring unhoused people in. And neighborhoods are not allowed to protest that. That means that in all the little sports centers, community centers, rec centers around the city now, our neighbors are going to be our formerly uh, homeless population. And I think we will very quickly see that that isn't the threat that people imagined it to be. In fact, as we all walk around our neighborhoods, it's you know most terrifying to see people living on the street who really don't have a way to protect themselves from disease. And like in New York at the turn of the century, that's not just their problem, that's all. So to help our unsheltered neighbors get services and a place to live is in everyone's interest, which it always has been, but now it's super apparent. And maybe if there's a kind of foothold that um, shelters gain in neighborhoods and neighborhoods see that it isn't threatening and it's not gonna bring their housing prices down or whatever the fear was, we won't have so much trouble establishing those on a more permanent basis. Right. And you're hearing similar things from homeless advocates as you are from climate change activists and saying, look, look at how we've responded with actual urgency to this pandemic. Why don't we do the same thing for these other crises that are unfolding in real time that are just as devastating and just as uh, existential? Yeah. It takes a virus to show the possibility of how we can come together to address an urgent issue like this. Yeah, and I I think in this case, it's not like it's going to end one day and we can have amnesia a month later. Mm -hmm. I think the science is correct. It's a kind of transformative moment. So we are going to have lasting effects of this for some time to come. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, I think we're much less likely to forget the lessons we've learned, whether they're environmental or about affordable housing or whatever. At City Lab, we're trying to work with our partners to get some housing progress made during this time. You know, construction costs are down, contractors need work, builders need work. If we can get this planning organized, there will probably be a good opportunity in six months to a year to actually make some progress on the affordable housing front. That's Dana Cuff. She's the founder of City Lab, a research center at UCLA that explores urban possibilities through experimental projects. She also co-authored a new book. It's called Urban Humanities, New Practices for Reimagining the City. I'm Avishai Artsy, and this is Works in Progress, a production of the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. Our music is composed by Austin Danson. We'll be back soon. In the meantime, take care.